Hello, you're listening to another edition of Oxford Cyber. This edition was recorded on 18th of January 2017. You'll hear a talk given by Professor Pedro Ferreira. The talk is called The Perfect Theory, A Century of Geniuses and Battle over General Relativity. Hope you enjoy! Let me introduce you the speaker of today, is Professor Pedro Ferreira, that he has a massive CV and a really stunning CV, so we'll pick just the bits and pieces of it, because otherwise I can talk for ages. Essentially, he is a professor of astrophysics at Oxford University and the director of the Beecroft Institute of Particle Astrophysics, Astrophysics and Cosmology, and uh, he's visiting fellows at the University of Edinburgh. He worked for over 20 years and did a lot of stuff, but I will not go into the, all the details. He essentially is an expert in theoretical cosmology and astrophysics, who is actively um, involved in several, thank you, in several international missions. He also wrote a lot of outreach articles for several journals, such as The New Scientist, the BBC Focus, and The Guardian. And he also wrote a book, that is, I guess, that book there, that is also the book that he will talk about today, whose title is The Perfect Theory, A Century of, a Century of Geniuses and the Battle Over General Relativity, that is essentially extremely successful by our general relativity, who has been uh, sold in more than 20 countries and also shortlisted for the Royal Society and Winter, uh, Winton uh, Science Book Prize in 2014. So to make a long story short, <laughs> Please help me to welcome Professor Pedro Ferreira. Do I need a mic or can you hear me? It's fine. Good. Thank you. Much better. Um, well, thank you very much for having me here. I thought you were going to leave the music on. It would be different. Um, uh, about three years ago, I wrote this book. And I went on a book tour. And at the time, something very exciting had happened. Uh, a few weeks before I gave my first talk about this, this book, um, there was an announcement that an experiment in the South Pole had measured gravitational waves from the very early universe. Um, what they'd done is that they'd looked up, they'd measured this relic light left over from the Big Bang, they kind of dissected it, looked at it, and they found in it signatures of ripples of space-time um, set up at the very early universe. And, you know, some people like to say set up by the Big Bang. And this was quite an amazing discovery because it was a de first detection at the time of gravitational waves and ripples in space-time, a prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was that it was... It had to do with the evolution of the universe. The universe had undergone this very hot beginning. Things had been stirred up. Weird physical mechanisms, uh, processes generated this gravitational waves. Um, it was Nobel Prize winning stuff. Okay? And we were all, you know, we were all floored by it. A colleague of mine said, um, this is uh, the most exciting discovery of the century. Now, the century is quite young, so it's not quite difficult. To, it's not very difficult to say that. Another of my colleagues said this is the most exciting discovery of his lifetime. Now he's pretty young, um, but you know that that was how we all felt about it. Now the weekend before this discovery, the discovery was announced on a Monday. Um, 
I was glued to my spot, my my, um, my iPhone, you know, on Facebook, or Twitter, and there were all these rumours flying about. And before the announcement was made of this incredible discovery, uh, we already all knew about it. Us in the know already knew about it because of of this, um, because of how, that's how we do things. These rumours spread by these, you know, these phones that we have. And my partner, she's a she, she's a um, she's a social anthropologist. And she was getting pretty annoyed because I kept on looking at my phone. And she says, I really don't get it. I really don't get it. I don't get it because, one, you didn't predict, you didn't predict it and you didn't discover it. So what's the big deal? Why are you so excited about this? Um, and that was, a, that was kind of a good question because, in some sense, individually, I had nothing invested in this discovery. On the other hand, it really opened up what was this big thing, which was... These discoveries, these discoveries open up a whole new world for people who work in, these, in the areas that I work on, people who work in science. And we collectively feel joy when things are discovered because there are new things to do, new things to understand, and you can take part in it. It just opens up this whole new intellectual landscape that you can work in. But there's more to that. It's that this discovery was in general relativity. And... I've just written this book about general relativity where I have tried to make a case that general relativity was special. Um, when I set out to write this book to try and explain why general relativity was special, I tried to figure out why, how, how would I would describe the arc of general relativity. And, you know, it's a scientific theory, so I could, you could say that I'm, I would describe the arc of a scientific theory, that, but that's pretty dry, and that doesn't really distinguish it from any other scientific theory. But I always felt there was more to general relativity than, than the fact that it's just scientific theory. I felt, first of all, I'm, I'm a groupie. I've always been obsessed by it. You know, I've worked on it throughout my life. Sometimes I haven't worked on it, but I've always been obsessed about the stories, about what was going on. And so I thought, do I describe it as, as an art movement? You know, is it more like an art movement where people get involved and there are all these passions? But art movements, you know, come into being and disappear pretty quickly. Uh, and people are passionate about it. But maybe it would be more like a political movement. And, you know, political movements last for longer. There's more at stake. And then I realized when I started writing this book that actually I should think of general relativity or describing the arc of the story or, or the arc of the history of general relativity as a biography, of a biography of a person. And the best analogy that I can find of general relativity is with the English author... Penelope Fitzgerald. Have you ever heard of Penelope? Some of you have heard of Penelope Fitzgerald. She's this brilliant author who had the most bizarre life. You know, she was born into, I wouldn't say affluence, but comfortable middle class. She went to a good school. She went to Oxford. She, this was, you know, she went to Oxford in the late 1920s and 1930s. She uh, wrote for, I don't know if it was the Tatler or the Spectator. She was a theatre critic. She, you know, she was fine. She was you know, part of the cultural firmament, London firmament. Um, she made a poor marriage. The guy gambled. Uh, they lost money. They went into debt. They had to leave their house. They moved to Suffolk. At some point, she's living with her three children on a barge on the Thames. Now, this isn't like now, where living on a barge on the Thames is pretty fantastic. Then it was pretty miserable. Um, and the barge sank. Um, <laughs> and so she ends up in sheltered housing um, for, I don't know, 20 years. She lives hand to mouth, doing some tutoring, some teaching. In her late 50s, she writes a book, um, biography, a group biography. Then she writes a novel called Offshore, and she wins the Booker Prize. Okay. And then, 
she's off, right? She's the toast of the town. She's invited to give talks. She's on the BBC. You can, you can, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can see her on panels discussing things. Um, and she dies in glory. I mean, she's this great, you know, one of the great, um, great English writers. And this, this, you know, this rise and fall and rise very much mimics or is parallels the, the story of general relativity. So I've been going on about general relativity, but I haven't told you what it is. So let me, let me give you a brief science lecture. What is general relativity? General relativity is the modern understanding of the force of gravity, the thing that keeps planets moving around together, the thing that pulls us to Earth. And what is gravity? Well, for, for many centuries, the theory of gravity was something very simple. It was this force, it was this mathematical force. This, uh, there was a, a mathematical law which described a force where if you had two massive bodies, the more massive the bodies were, the stronger the pull of gravity was. The further apart these objects were, the weaker uh, the pull of gravity. And there's a very exact force that Isaac Newton set up. The problem with this, this force is fantastic. It describes basically everything in our, you know, in our um, sensual realm. There are some niggling inconsistencies, but let's not worry about that. At the beginning of the 20th century, um, Einstein came up with a theory, with a theory of special relativity. And it was a theory that um, uh, um, could marry basically the, the laws of kinematics and dynamics with the laws of electricity and magnetism. And I'm not going to go into that, apart from the fact that there was one principle that came out of this, which was that the maximum speed, there's a cosmic speed limit, which is the speed of light and the maximum speed at which information or anything can propagate is the speed of light. Now, Newton's law of gravity, which is this attractive force, which depends on the distance and the mass, has no speed limit. It works instantaneously. It has an action at a distance. And so there was this inconsistency at the beginning of the 20th century in that Newton's theory of gravity didn't fit with Einstein's theory of special relativity. And in 2007, while Einstein was working in the patent office, he had just, he'd just come up with a special theory of relativity. Someone asked him to write a review of relativity, and he was writing this all-encompassing re review of the laws of physics, and he was stuck because gravity didn't fit into his theory of special relativity. So he set on, off on this trek, which lasted about eight years, to try and figure out how to shoehorn gravity into his special theory of relativity. And it was, um, it was a real trek. I mean, it was... It took him, he, he went down a lot of dead ends. It's, uh, it's quite a fascinating story in that he got things wrong, then he thought he'd solved it, then he, didn't, he hadn't solved it. A key insight that he had was around 2012, he went to a mathematician colleague and said, look, I need some tools to do this. And the mathematician said, you need to learn, learn non-Riemannian geometry. And um, he, it's a bit like, he told him you need to learn Sanskrit and you need to write a novel in Sanskrit and which is exactly what he did he went and learnt this obscure bit of mathematics he, um, he learnt it he figured it out and he found a way of putting gravity into his special theory of relativity you'll note that I still haven't told you what special um, general relativity is now general relativity you can think of the following space and time now instead of just being this place where you put things, take a life of their own. And so imagine the, the following. Imagine that you take a ball of, of stuff, like the sun, and you put it in space-time. It'll deform space and time. It'll deform the geometry of space-time. It'll warp it slightly. Now imagine that you take another ball and you throw it through the space-time. 
it'll coast through this deformed space-time, and it'll feel the bends and folds of space-time. And so if you do the very simple exercise, as I said, put the sun in space-time, then take the Earth and throw it with exactly the right velocity, it'll feel the, the bends of space-time, and it'll just coast around in this warped geometry of space-time, and it'll go around in a circular orbit. So now abstract yourself from this. What you actually see is you don't see space-time. What you see is these two bodies. And you'll see these two bodies, one at the centre, another one moving around in a circular, in a, in a, in a circular orbit. It'll look like there's a force attracting them, but it's not that. It's basically this, this body deforms space-time, and this body feels the deformation of space-time. This, this one will also deform space-time, but much less than the bigger body. And that's uh, the general theory of relativity. Um, uh, a, a, a Princeton physicist, John Archibald Wheeler, had a saying which was along the lines of um, stuff tells stuff tells space-time how to bend space-time tells stuff how to move and it's this interplay between space-time and, and um, between space-time and, and mass which is the general theory of relativity now Einstein's theory was he, he puts out his theory at the end of 2015 and it was revolutionary people kind of knew it was right. The gross majority of people didn't understand this weird mathematics because you need to use this non-Romanian geometry to do the calculations. Um, but they kind of, you know, they believed it. They, they said it's, a, it's an interesting interpretation. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit obscure. It turns out that Einstein made a prediction. Einstein said, well, if you put stuff in space-time and it bends space-time, if you shoot a light ray, the light ray, like any other thing, will feel the bends in space-time and will be curved. So unlike in normal Newtonian gravity, when you just shoot a light ray, it just goes along a straight line. If you've got a deformed space-time, it'll feel the, the, the curves of space-time, uh, um, the, the, cur the, the bends, the folds of space-time due to this mass. So he predicted light would be bent. And he predicted an experiment. He said... If you can do the following completely bonkers experiment, you would be able to prove this. Look at a set of stars in the distance and map their positions. Um, so you know, make a make a you know, take, take a picture of the stars and you've got all their positions. Now wait for the following to happen. Wait for the sun to go in front, so that you have a massive object in front of these stars. The light from these stars will be deflected around the sun. So it'll be bent. The paths will be deflected. But you're not going to see this because the sun's pretty bright. So wait for this to happen and the total eclipse. So that the sun is completely masked out. So, you know, it's a big ask. Um, it turns out that in 1919, a total eclipse was predicted. And not only that, um, you could... Basically, you knew the position of the sun relative to the stars... And there was a cluster of stars which would be right behind the sun at that time. So the English astronomer, Arthur Eddington, decided to do this experiment. He, he measured the position of this star cluster, the Hyades. Then he went to the small island of Principe, which is in the Gulf of Guinea, just opposite Gabon, Nigeria. And um, there, at, I don't know if it, I, f I forget if maybe the 25th of May, 1919, there was a total eclipse. He took pictures of exactly the positions of these stars, and he found that they were deflected. 
And not only did he find that they were deflected, he found that they were deflected exactly by the amount predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity. And so here we have the situation where Einstein comes up not only with a reformulation of what gravity is, it's obscure, you know, it could be just words, it could be an interpretation, but he makes a prediction. He makes a prediction. This guy goes out and measures this, the, 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 and confirms his prediction. That's it, he had it made. Um, the, the results from Eddington's ex experiment, he, he went and made, I think the results were announced around the 11th of November, 1919. Um, the following day, the Times of London had front-page news about this. The New York Times the next day. And the kind of headlines were along the following. Um, I think this is the New York Times. All light askew in the heavens. Stars not where they seemed or were calcula calculated to be, but nobody need worry. And it was headlines like this. Einstein became a complete superstar. He was interviewed. Um, he kind of became the Brian Cox at this time. And in one interview, he said the following. In Germany, I'm called a German man of science, and in England, I'm represented as a Swiss Jew. If I came to be represented as a bête noire, the descriptions would be reversed, and I should become a Swiss Jew for the Germans, and a German man of science for the English. <laughs> and he was very good, I mean, already at this stage, he was very good at these, uh, these sound bites, these one-liners. Now, I studied engineering in Lisbon in the 80s, um, and... Our lectures, we, went to, we had lectures in these huge lecture halls with like 200, 300 students. Um, this fantastic fascist architecture. It's just stone and steel and glass. I mean, it's really, it's an, it's an amazing building. But I was completely bored to tears because I really wasn't interested in what I was learning. I, you know, engineering wasn't my thing. I didn't want to learn how to build bridges. I didn't want, le want to learn how to build computers. Um, I wasn't very interested in, in oil. Um, and... I had some lecturers who were teaching us things like electromagnetism, and they would say, look, go and read Einstein's papers. They're, they're actually really readable. You might enjoy them. And so some of us went and read them. And at some point we decided, well, why don't we go and teach ourselves ge general relativity? And there was a library there with some old books, um, old amazing books, all written by pretty amazing physicists. Um, and I took one of these books and I read it from cover to cover, and I taught myself general relativity. And it was a trek. It was just like Einstein's trek. You start reading it, you realize, oh, God, I've got to learn this god awful mathematics, this um, non-Riemannian geometry. You invest the time, you learn it, and once you do that, the whole universe opens up. You can calculate all these incredible things. Um, I teach it now. I teach it now here at, at Oxford. Well, I taught it for five years. I, I haven't taught it for a year now. And my students go through the same trek. You... you you delve into this thing, it's, it's really esoteric, it's really bizarre, but you, you, you just go through it, and when you're out of the tunnel, you can calculate things. And it's a bit what an undergraduate um, student says of mine. When, when, when people come up with a new theory, there's all this low-hanging fruit, there's all this stuff that's up there for grabs that you can just calculate. In some sense, a theory takes a life of its own. It's not associated to its creator anymore. It's just there. It's this, this body of things which are the unfulfilled, unfulfilled potential which you can just work through and work out with all these amazing things. And that's exactly what happened with, with the general theory of relativity. In, after 1915, a bunch of people went and used it to calculate things. For example, there was a German mathematician astronomer called Karl Schwarzschild, who um, 
Theory comes out in 1915. He's, he's actually fighting on the Eastern Front against the Russians, but he's getting the, the proceedings from the Prussian Academy of Sciences sent to him. He gets Einstein's paper, and he, and he, he reads it, and he realizes that he can calculate something. And he, and he, he, he realizes that you know, the simplest thing you can do is just sit down and calculate what happens if you just have a mass in space-time. What does space-time look like? He calculates it, and he, he finds a solution, and he sends it to, to Einstein, and Einstein says that he sent it to Einstein saying the following as you see the war is kindly disposed towards me allowing me despite gunfire gunfire at terrestrial distance to take this walk in your land of ideas now he works out the, the space time of this mass but Einstein finds it really interesting and actually presents it for him at the Prussian Academy of Sciences um, but this solution has this weird thing which is as you go closer and closer to the mass and if the mass is very big um, there's this weird shroud around it. There's this weird shroud around it that they don't really understand, and they don't understand these properties. They just know there's something odd there. This point of no return. Schwarzschild had basically calculated for the first time the space-time of a black hole. Um, Einstein was very suspicious about the black holeness of it, and he just thought it a mathematical artefact. Schwarzschild sadly died a few months later. But then there were this group, other group of people. There was a... Um, a Jesuit priest, a, sorry, a Catholic priest in Belgium, and a, uh, a, a meteorologist in mathematician in the Soviet Union, who both got Einstein's papers and decided instead of looking at the very local, what happens at a point mass or a mass, let's look at what happens to the whole universe. And typically, what you do when you get equations is you, you make simplifying assumptions and. Often the assumption is you either look at very small or you look at very large. So they, look, they looked at very large and tried to work out what the space-time, the biggest space-time of all, the space-time of the universe would do. And they work out what the space-time does and they conclude completely independently that the universe should be evolving in time. That the universe isn't this static thing just sitting there with stars and galaxies and stuff just living in it. The universe is evolving. And in particular is expanding. Now, Einstein, they, they would send their papers to Einstein. Again, Einstein was pretty suspicious about this. Um, the, the priest meets him in a conference in 1927 and actually gets a, a taxi with him and asks him, so you got my paper, what do you think? And, and Einstein says, although your calculations are correct, your physics is abominable. Um, and which I think kind of characterizes... Einstein had this thing where he'd done this, these incredibly bizarre things, but he was very um, he was very suspicious of the bizarreness of other people's calculations, even when it involved his theories. So, for example, he was suspicious about the black holeness of Schwarzschild's solutions, and he was suspicious about the expansion of the universe from these other people. The fact is that a few years later, people measured the expansion of the universe. They looked at distant galaxies and they found that they were moving away from us in a pretty coherent form, which is the hallmark of an expanding universe. So this is, you know, this is the low-hanging fruit. People were calculating, finding these nice results and building up this body. That, that the theory had, had a life of its own. It was, it was growing. And then things fell apart. And the, there are a number of reasons why... why things fell apart. For, for a start, as I said, Einstein wasn't really, wasn't great at promoting his own theory because he kind of was suspicious about the things that were interesting and right, like Schwarzschild's solution and, and the expanding universe. 
He went on a track of his own, but he decided to even go further with this mathematization of reality. And for 30 years, he tried to come up with a unified theory, all of it which was complete nonsense. So Einstein began to represent pretty flaky science. Um, but more significantly, around 1927, General Relativity's younger sister came into being, um, quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the physics that we use to understand microscopic physics. It's the physics that we under, use to understand atomic spectra, molecules, the stability of matter, etc. It's a beautiful body of work. Um, it's a fantastic theory, very mathematical as well, but it's eminently practical. You can go away and you can calculate something and someone can go into a lab and measure it. Unlike general relativity where you, know, you can kind of measure the expansion <coughs> of the universe, but that's it. There wasn't very much that you could, you could measure the deflection of light, but there was very little practical that you could do with it. With quantum mechanics, you can do lots of things. A notable example is you can build atom bombs. Um, and quantum mechanics basically sucked up all the intellectual endeavor. Everyone moved into quantum mechanics because that's the topic to work on. It was so rich. It was so practical. It had, you had this beautiful interface <coughs> between theorists and experimenters. It just took off for 25 years. And general relativity was kicked into the long grass. But there were other aspects, not minor aspects, not as important, but not minor aspects that played a role. For a start, there was the, 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 the rise of the Reich in the Third Reich in, in, um, in Germany, in which um, Jewish physicists were basically kicked out of the universities. And kind of the icon of Jewish physics was Einstein. And the icon of Jewish ideas were Einstein's theories. So a number of books came out completely trashing Einstein's theory of relativity. It was clean from, from, um, from German academia. And, um, and so G Germany, which was really the powerhouse of physics in the, in the early 20th century, was, was completely done by, was completely destroyed. The Soviet Union, something interesting. A, there were people working on Einstein's theory of general relativity. There was this current of dialectic materialist philosophers who looked at the theorizing that people did based on Einstein's idea is completely reactionary. It was completely counter to the empiricism and the, um, the change in the revolutionary ideas that you, you, sh you should be using at times like those. Um, and you can find these interesting, you can, you can find interesting articles. For example, I found an article called Against the Reactionary Einsteinianism in Physics in the Journal of the Soviet Fleet. And you would find these odd articles about these things, but it, there was a real movement. And even though the higher-ups, Beria and Stalin, knew where, you know, knew where their bread was buttered, they knew that the physicists were going to be the people who were going to build radar and you know, the useful stuff for defense, um, that, that this constant um, harassing by the philosophers didn't help uh, general relativity in the Soviet Union. But even in the US, there were problems. Even in the US, people didn't find that a lot of physicists thought the general relativity was just this esoteric mathematical thing that wasn't of any use. Um, so much so that the, the, the chief editor of the main physical journal in, in, in the US Physical Review was about to put out an editorial saying that from now on we are going to refuse any articles about space-time and general relativity. And John Archibald Wheeler, the guy I mentioned at the beginning, put a stop to this. Um, the guy who ran the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, this is an institute where Einstein ended up and many other very eminent physicists ended up, uh, 
really frowned upon people working on general relativity. He thought it was a complete waste of time and people shouldn't do it. In 1957, Richard Feynman, who you've probably heard of, went to a, a small meeting, one of the only meetings on general relativity in Chapel Hill in South Carolina. And he, he, he listened to what people were, were talking about and he, he, he gave a talk and in it he, has, he said the following, there exists one serious difficulty and that is the lack of experiments. The best viewpoint is that there are experiments in Calculate. In this field, we are not pushed by experiments, but pulled by imagination. In other words, he was saying this is a theoretical field. We, you know, there's no data. Let's not even pretend there's data. Let's just think. Let's just do sort of experiments. Let's think and let's just push this as far as possible. But there is no data. And so for 25 years, basically, general relativity was kicked into the long grass and, and was dead. And so this is the bit where Penelope Fitzgerald's boat sinks. Okay, that's where we are in, in the narrative. Um, and then, in the same way that things fell apart, things came together again. And again, you can identify a number of different aspects. First of all, if you if you look at the Miami Herald, circa 1955, like I do, um, you will find interesting headlines. You will find a number of articles about spaceships and aircrafts which might be built which could counter gravity based on the theory of general relativity with headlines like spaceship marble seen if gravity outwitted new air dream planes flying outside gravity so it's kind of don't forget that you know 1950s 1950s is, is the golden age of science fiction so people are really out there trying to have these crazy ideas but it's not only science fiction the Air Force and the Army start to think, OK, maybe there's something to this. You know, they look at quantum physics and they realise how useful quantum physics has been. Quantum physics built them the bomb. So maybe there's something that could be done with general relativity. And the buzzword again and again is anti-gravity. Can we build anti-gravity machines? So the Air Force and the Army start to pump money into people who work on general relativity. And so you go where the money is. And people started working on, on these things. But there was another interesting aspect. During the Second World War, a bunch of engineers and physicists had had to work on things which were of strategic defense uh, uh, interest to the defense. And typically, one of the things was radar, how to you know, detect submarines, how to detect aircraft. And they developed these incredible skills and incredible understanding of um, um, radio detection, in other words, using basically doing electromagnetism at very long wavelengths. When they left, um, they went back, and some of them went back into academia and decided to turn their knowledge of, of radio waves to look at the heavens. And they started building these um, d dishes, these detectors, to, to look up at the sky. And what they found is that if you look at those frequencies, the universe was teeming with, with objects which were emitting radio waves. And not only that, that these objects were just pumping out energy, a colossal amount of energy. And if you try to look at these objects and figure out how massive they were, they were supermassive. And if they were supermassive, they would have a lot of gravity. And if they have a lot of gravity, then you need to worry about your theory of gravity. You need to think, worry about general relativity. So this new radar generation all of a sudden opened up an observational window which is of real relevance if you wanted to, to work on general relativity. But we can't forget that the way a field moves forward often is there are these aspects which are in some sense impersonal, but it also has to do with the people. And so um, 
people who had been working on physics, who had been working on different things, all of a sudden became interested in working on general relativity. And there are three examples. One of them is John Archibald Wheeler, who I mentioned, who worked on the uh, atom bomb, who worked on the H-bomb. But in the 1950s, he decided, OK, I really want to start working on something different. I want to, underst I want to understand what happens to stars made of neutrons. And if you try to understand stars made of neutrons, they're really compact. Something weird is going to happen with gravity. I need to teach myself general relativity. He proposed to Princeton he would teach a course in general relativity, and he just got hooked. Not only did he get hooked, he generated a school of undergraduates and graduate students who were just obsessively working on, on, on general relativity. So this new wave started to come out of Princeton. These young people were trying to look at different aspects of general relativity. Interestingly, the same thing happened in the Soviet Union. A guy called Yakov Zeldovich, who um, worked on the Soviet H-bomb, he decided that he would also, um, he was bored. He actually was much clearer. He said he was bored. He wanted to start thinking about gravity in, 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 in regimes where objects were very, very heavy. And he also generated this school of students who started looking at what happened when very massive stars collapse or when stars move around each other. What happens to a black hole? What do, do black holes really exist? Here, it was a guy called Dennis Sharma who was based at Cambridge who, who was teaching, decided to teach general relativity and just start, decided to suck in people to, to work with him. And he generated this school of um, students who you've all heard of. You've all heard of Stephen Hawking. You've all heard of Roger Penrose. He wasn't, he wasn't his student, but was a very junior colleague and was sucked in by, by Dennis Sharma. You've heard of Martin Rees, who was the Astronomer Royal. And all of these people were came out of, of, of Dennis Sharma's hands. So he generated this school of young people, as did Wheeler, as did Zeldovich, who started to populate the intellectual landscape of general relativity. And things really did take off. Um, Kip Thorne, who is a Caltech physicist, who, if you want to put a bet on who's going to win the Nobel Prize this year, he's going to be one of the three people who's going to win it. Um, he describes it as the golden age of general relativity going from 1963 to mid-1970s. Why? Because so many things happen. For a start, Schwarzschild's black holes, the fact that you have this bit of space-time with this shroud and nothing can come out. Uh, black holes, people began to take them seriously and try to look for them, come up with signatures for looking um, for them in, in, in astronomical observations. And they found ways of doing it by looking at um, x-rays, by looking at uh, the wobbling of, if you have a star and you have a black hole, you'll see this star wobbling around, but you won't see the other thing. So you really won't understand why the star is going around in this funny orbit. Um, uh, as I said, you look at x-rays, um, you, you, uh, uh, you'll, you'll look at also uh, radio waves. Uh, Roger Penrose looked at the theory, and he, uh, people kept on saying, yeah, but black holes, it's what, it's what Einstein said, it's a, a mathematical artifact. Roger Penrose looks at Einstein's theory and says, no, it's a completely inevitable, inevitable prediction of gravitational collapse. If you have stuff collapsing and it's big enough, you will always form black holes. <coughs> so if general relativity is correct, you have to see black holes. So he kind of proved mathematically that black holes had to be out there. Um, and then people said, OK, but you know, where would they come from? They might come from these stars that um, Wheeler was talking about, these neutron stars where you have a lot of neutrons packed together. Um, where are you going to see? Where are you going to see these embryos? Jocelyn Bell Burnell, <coughs> in, the, in the late 1960s, was doing her PhD. She sets up a radio telescope, and she starts seeing these periodic blips in the sky. 
Um, she goes and talks to a supervisor they don't know. They call them little green men because they have no idea what they are until they decide to publish and very rapidly an interpretation comes out that these are basically spinning neutron stars. Basically, they, Jocelyn Bell-Burnell had discovered these neutron stars. Jocelyn Bell is my colleague here. Jocelyn Bell-Burnell is my colleague here now. Um, um, not only that, uh, remember that Friedman and Lemaitre, the, the Russian meteorologist and the Catholic priest had said that the universe was expanding. If the universe was expanding, it must have been hotter in the past. You'd expect to have some kind of leftover light from this primordial hotness, this primordial furnace. 1965, it was discovered. This relic light left over from the very early universe. And so on, and so on, and so on. And so what you, you find is that during the 1970s, this theory that for, for decades had been considered esoteric and finished was rich in concepts, in mathematics, and, and, um, and observations. Now, I entered the field, you know, a little bit over a decade later, and I was hooked. I was completely hooked. I mean, I was, I was a real groupie. You, you know, you, you'd have people like Hawking come through or Penrose come through, and they were real rock stars. I mean, it was just, even though people didn't work on it, they knew how important this stuff was. Um, Yet yeah, it still suffered from the same consequence, the same stigma that it had, had suffered before. Um, when, I, when I set out to do my PhD uh, um, late 80s, early 90s, I, I wanted to work on general relativity. People said, you don't, you, don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that because you're never going to get a job in academia. You don't want to do that. Um, and I've met, you know, I, so I've ended up working on general relativity, but I've, kind of in, I've tricked the system because I've ended up working on cosmology, which is technically general relativity. It's, it straddles astrophysics and physics and theoretical particle physics and you know general relativity is at its heart but cosmology has a life of its own but general relativity pure general relativity is not like that there are two examples of friends of mine which I, I'd like to, to give one is there's a guy called Tim Palmer who is this incredibly eminent eminent climate scientist now he's FRS I think he's been knighted um uh, he's in the news often to discuss climate modelling. He's come up with very clever ways of, of modelling the uncertainty, of including uncertainty in climate models. Um, when I first met him, um, I told him what I was doing, and he said, well, I'm a relativist. And I said, no, 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 you're a climate scientist. He said, no, 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 I'm a relativist. I actually was Dennis Sharma's student. I started off with Dennis Sharma, and at some point I realised that there was no future, and so... And I became very interested in, in stochastic processes and fluids, and I moved into to climate modelling. But at heart, you know, he still considers himself a, a, a relativist. I have another friend of mine who, basically, he, he worked with a lot of these big names, and at some point he couldn't get a permanent job in academia, and so he left. And he, he works he works in data warehousing and you know software and you know very fancy stuff. Um, I meet him every now and then, and he's always asking me, so what's new? What's going on? Oh, I've been thinking about that paper that we once discussed 25 years ago. Um, and he can't, they can't shake it. Once you're sucked into this vortex of general relativity, you become this groupie. You become part of this cult. And I think that kind of explains why I was so excited and why we were all so excited with the announcement of, of the gravity waves. Um, uh, the gravity wave discovery three years ago. Now, when I first wrote the proposal for this book, I gave it to my, my 
literary agent, and you know, literary agents are great at coming up with titles. And he said, the title of this book is Something is Going to Happen. Um, and I thought, yeah, well, it's kind of true, but I don't think people will know what the book is about if it's called Something is Going to Happen. Um, um, he said, no, let's just go with it. Anyway, luckily my editor said, no, let's call it The Perfect Theory, because I called it The Perfect Theory in the book. But I w- that the something is going to happen always was in the back of my mind, because it really was in some sense about that. And the fact that I'd set out on this book tour, um, and that something had happened, that gravity waves had been discovered in the sky, was was just proof that you know something was happening. Now, we all know what happened, right? Well, some of us know what happened. That discovery was shot down. About six months later, well, over a period of six months, but definitively six months later, people reanalyzed the data from these experiments looking at the sky, and they found that this relic light, this, these signals, weren't gravitational waves. They were... Um, it was just... It was dust from the galaxy. It was just the galaxy is in the way of this all this primordial light, and it was mucking it up. And so the original team kind of jumped the gun when they made the announcement. And a lot of people were very critical of them because they said they should have done a bit more work trying to figure out if these if the, the data was clean enough. And so that thing didn't happen. But we all know what happened a year ago, and something really did happen. A year ago, um, again, the rumor started to come out that. An experiment called LIGO had, for the first time, detected gravitational waves. And this time, it's not gravitational waves left over from the Big Bang, but gravitational waves left over, gravitational waves that arise when two black holes that orbit each other and slowly decay until they merge and form one big black hole, the ripples in space-time left over from that. And the rumours, you know, what masses could they have? No, we can't have those masses. Yes, it really does have those masses, but nothing predicts those masses until finally on the day um, where it was announced, maybe 16th of February last year, uh, they live-streamed the press conference, and we organised it in our big lecture theatre to just to, to watch it. And it was a completely magical experience because they didn't really have to say very much. All they had to do was show the plot of the data. And it was just as clean as it could be. You could just see, you could see incredibly cleanly the merger, the, the, the signal of the two black holes coming in, merging, and then forming one black hole. It was really an incredible data set. We were all moved. And I, I'd like to say we were moved to tears. We weren't, but we were moved. It was really something that affected us profoundly. It is, I would say that it is, even though it's not my field specifically, and I've <coughs> witnessed other things, it's probably the most exciting scientific discovery of my lifetime. I'm not young. Um, and so something did happen, but it's not going to end there. We, we, we're basically, we, we are basically on, uh, a lot of the scientific programs in big science to do with physics at the moment are targeting things which are related to general relativity. Let me give you an example. Some years ago I was, I was, Working, I, I was consulting for the European Space Agency and I was sent a bunch of proposals for future satellites. These are satellites that cost between many hundreds of millions to a billion euros. Um, evaluate which satellites were interesting, scientifically interesting. And the, some, the, the top-ranked satellites um, in more fundamental physics all had to do with general relativity. There was one that wanted to look for X-ray, the X-ray emissions around black holes, there was another which was to basically mimic what LIGO would eventually do, but in space. 
So measure the gravitational wave left over from um, black holes. There was another which was to measure, to make a map of space-time, map the galaxies out to when the universe was much, much younger. And by mapping out the distribution of galaxies, you map out the, the, the basically the geometry of space-time, and it would teach us something about how, gra how, how gravity evolves. Um, that's just from satellite missions. But there are other experiments. There's this, there's this camera called the Large Synoptic um, Survey Telescope, which is currently being built in Yatacama, Chile. This huge, huge CCD, which is going to basically take pictures of the night sky regularly. It's basically going to take pictures of the whole sky on a regular basis. And I'm doing that, it's just going to accumulate lots and lots of information about, again, the distribution of galaxies so that we can build up a map of space-time. A particular favourite of mine is the Square Kilometre Array. And the Square Kilometre Array is... And I've got my glasses. Does anyone have some reading glasses? Um, the Square Kilometre Array uh, is going to... The Square Kilometre Array is basically going to... Um, is a radio telescope, and it's... It's called the Square Kilometre Array because if you add the area of all the dishes, they're like, you know, satellite TV dishes. Well, not exactly that, but like satellite TV dishes. If you add all the area, it, it should be a square kilometre. And it's going to basically... A colleague of mine said it's, it's going to videotape the, the, the night sky over it this continuously. So you can just build up all this information about what's out there. Very compact objects, neutron stars, and where the galaxies are distributed. So I'm just going to finish with a reading. In 2009, I was invited to... Principe, the island where Eddington made his measurement, to celebrate the 90 years of the, the eclipse expedition, the, the measurement. And, and it was, it was a, a really incredible experience because they, they, you know, we were at the place where Eddington made the measurement. It's this farm which is falling apart. Um, it's this tropical island. It's bang on the equator. It's just this magical expedition. It was a combination of formal and run-down. Uh, and it was a great experience. Throughout the day, as festivities continued in Prince, Einstein and Eddington's names were on everyone's lips. In this lost corner of a minuscule island, it was too much to ask that anyone could actually know what we were talking about. Ponderous nods from the local and visiting dignitaries didn't mean much, and a shoal of children and teenagers ran around during the ceremony. They didn't know what it was about, true, but they had, of course, heard of Einstein, and some even knew about the famous Englishman Eddington who had come to visit many years ago. They all agreed that it was a good thing, that small island's claim to fame. As I watched the crowd joining in this odd esoteric celebration, I saw it as yet another quirky sign of how universal and democratic Einstein's theory has become. While tortuous and often intractable, Einstein's theory has been at the same time democratically, easily encapsulated in a few pages of condensed equations. The history of general relativity spans many continents with a full cast of characters, characters that is truly international and varied. That night, we handed out telescopes to the crowd and looked up at the stars. The sky was breathtaking, ready to offer up much more that would help us delve deeper into Einstein's theory. I thought of how, even now, Einstein's theory was driving us to look out into the cosmos on a grander scale. The new Prince might now be in the south of Africa or in the Australian desert, and the new telescope would use the latest, most powerful technologies of the 21st century. While Eddington had used an optical telescope, something with a lens, an eyepiece, and a photographic plate, this new phase will rely on radio antennas and dishes. Radio has already given so much to general relativity. 
but this time it will go much further than has ever been, uh, ever been envisaged. The idea is to build a collection of, ten of thousands, tens of thousands of radio antennas scattered across hundreds and thousands of kilometers, known as the Square Kilometer Array, or SKA, because the total collecting area of all the antennas should add up to a square kilometer. It'll take one, possibly two continents to support it. Some of the telescopes will lie in the vastness of the, vastness of the Australian West, and others will be strewn through southern Africa. It'll be a truly continental African endeavour, and in the same way that Eddington used Prince to establish general relativity, the SKA would be the beast that could test Einstein's theory on a cosmological scale. That night, as we celebrated Eddington's and Einstein's colossal achievements, I thought about how we are only at the beginning of what the theory of space-time is going to tell us about the universe. The 21st century is surely going to be the century of Einstein's general theory of relativity, and I feel fortunate to be living at a time when so many new things are waiting to be discovered. Almost a hundred years after Einstein finally came up with this theory, something fantastic is going to happen. I'm going to end there. between quantum mechanics and general relativity, that there's just a missing piece that needs to be discovered in the middle, do you think there needs to be a fundamental reworking of both concepts to try and develop something, uh, you know, a, a, a new intellectual concept that will bring the things that we know to be true together and then kind of uh, deal with some of the contradictions between the two theories? I think that the only way to fundamentally reconcile quantum mechanics and general relativity something's got to give. Either quantum mechanics has to change or general relativity has to change. Um, it's interesting that the gross majority of people think that something has to give in general relativity. Some people like Penrose think something has to give in quantum mechanics. But I, I think it's not going to be just a fix. And do you think it's something that we might see in our lifetime or do you think we're a long way? You never know. You never, see, this is the thing which is impossible to know. I don't see it. I don't think anyone sees it. There are these interesting ideas to do now with the discreteness of space that keep on popping up. Um, but who knows who's going to be the maverick who's going to actually have the right idea who all of a sudden will switch things like Einstein. And my last one, sorry to be able to bring no, you no, you're yeah. entitled to four then, questions. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the string theory, like just what you're talking thoughts on how that sits in the middle. Here's the thing. I don't work in string theory, so my thoughts are completely irrelevant. Some of my best friends are string theorists. I think what they're doing, the things that I do understand are really interesting. So I say let them be. <laughs> yeah. From the perspective of an outside observer, it takes forever for something to fall into a black hole. Oh. And to be known, I think, correctly in science fiction, the spacecraft with your loved one just moves slower and slower. There's always the possibility yes. that in the future you could invent a better spacecraft and rescue it. Does that not mean that from an outsider point of view, it takes forever for a black hole to actually fall? I, I think that is true. So there aren't true. any black holes. Well, there are only things very, very close. So you could argue that there aren't any black holes, but you also know if you, you could have formed black holes primordially. So you could have black holes already formed in space now. You could have these, singular, these singularities, these uh, um, uh, high fluctuations in curvature already, and then all you're doing is accreting stuff, so you're building up these black holes more and more. Okay, by primordial, so what, what is the magic point at which you can get a black hole then and can't now? Um, well, 
if you if you're at the beginning of space-time, it wasn't perfectly smooth and had any distribution of curvature. And some of these curvature points were so extreme that they correspond to black So we really are talking about back in the inflationary era. For example, that yes, that's where people normally do that. And would that then mean like supernovas, the aren't, uh, black holes aren't a consequence of supernovas? Well, the thing is they're, they're so close that you know this becomes a matter of semantics, right? So. Have there been any new consequences of general relativity positives in the last, say, decade? There seems to have been lots of proofs of things that were theorized a while ago. Um, are you saying what's the new conceptual stuff, basically? Yeah. Um, what are people excited about other than proofs that were already theorized? So, one thing which is interesting is the two body problem. Okay? The two body problem you know how to solve the Newtonian gravity, right? It's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you can solve it analytically. You can't do that in general relativity, okay? And so you need to do it on a computer. And so you say, okay, so just do it on a computer. So take two black holes and solve it um, on a computer. People tried to do this for 40 years, and they could basically, they would evolve these equations and things would blow up and you'd get all these infinities. And, and it was only in 2005 that they were able to do it. And the fascinating thing is millions of, well, many millions of dollars were spent on, um, on developing. There was a whole grand challenge program in the US to try and solve this in the 90s that went nowhere. And it was this postdoc at Caltech who decided to rewrite the code from scratch and basically just take all these bits from different people, rewrite his own code, and set it running. A guy called Franz Pretorius. And I emailed him about it and he said, you know, so how did it go? He said, well, I set it running. And it ran, and it ran, and it ran. And I completely freaked out because it didn't stop running. <laughs> and it actually worked. And so he ran this code and cracked the problem of what happens when two black holes come together and merge to form one. But what is the most bizarre thing is that six months later, two other groups, independently and independently from him, with completely different techniques, did the same thing. So there was this kind of you know moment where people... <gasps> relaxed and solved the problem. Um, but that, that's, I think, an interesting, it's kind of a grungy answer to what you're saying, but I think it's really fascinating because that has allowed, for example, LIGO to then go and to pick out the signal. Um, so there's something observably different in that solution to the Newtonian solution? Yes. Well, you don't have black holes in the Newtonian solution, and a crucial part is how they would come together, and then how would, how would these shrouds, these event horizons, come together form this blob and how it oscillates and emit radio. Uh, um, uh, uh, go online and look for movies of black holes merging and you can see how it happens. It's pretty amazing. It's nice stuff. It's nice stuff. Um, um, so it's been touched upon already. Apparently, like, so I'm not a physicist, absolutely not. Um, and then um, some of my friends are physicists and they say, well, physics is in this kind of crisis because quantum mechanics and Newtonian physics just doesn't fit classical physics and, and quantum mechanics. It doesn't work. So um, this seems to be like the core problem. Um, first question, would you agree on that? Is um, that like the problem of physics at the moment? So, I, okay, so first of all, I wouldn't say that unsolved problems are a crisis. I think it's great. I think it's great when you know, um, first, second. We, we actually do know really well 
how to um, work with gravity in, in, uh, in quantum mechanics. We know how to marry them pretty well. It depends on what regime you want to do this. Okay? And so what energy regime you want to do this. In the regime that basically everything seems to function, we know how to do that beautifully. You know, it, it, it's, it's, um, there, there's basically a fundamental tool of physics called effective field theories where you choose the energy scale at which you want to work and you pick your degrees of freedom and you can work out, write out, write out your degrees of freedom and you can, quant you can do everything you want and there are no inconsistencies. The problem is when you try and push this to the highest possible way out of the reach energy scales and that's where the inconsistencies come in. So there's a kind of fun fundamental conceptual problem in a particular regime of marrying gravity and um, quantum mechanics, and which was I, I was alluding to, and in that something has to give in that regime. But we know that, for example, we don't we don't describe the physics of this table using the standard model of particle physics. You know, we have a perfectly good theory of physics to describe this table. You know, well, we have a perfectly good theory to describe particles up to you know ten to the whatever GeV. We just don't seem to have the right theory up there. What was the other question? The other question was, um, so what, what is the bottleneck? Like, where do you see some sort of future development happening? Would you say, we need, like, better computers, we need a better telescope, we need, like, like where is the bottleneck? I don't know. I mean, I think some people would say we need new mathematics. Um, um, <laughs> I, I, if I knew... <laughs> How did Feynman get his estimate of time dilation at the centre of the Earth so wrong? I was many people. I was derailed three times as a student by Feynman. I didn't realise it at the time. I, you know, but I've never looked at that part, so I don't know how to answer. But you, you, you know what I'm talking no, about. No, I don't. No. For Feynman, it was relatively recently announced. He claimed that the time dilation. Um, was so tiny for an Earth-like gravity field, it would amount to a tiny fraction of a second over the whole age of the Earth. Right. That's many, many orders of magnitude too little. Yes. It's actually quite substantial. Yes. Indeed, comparable to special relativity. No, I know. We knew, but um, I didn't know that Feynman got it wrong. I never. He got his maths wrong. Well, he said it as a fiat, right. and nobody. But it's incredible that nobody can right. dispute it. Yes. I have two questions. So one of them goes back to earlier when um, you asked about sort of what has to get between sort of quantum mechanics and uh, general relativity. I was wondering what is the inconsistency there that requires that question? That's a really good question. Um, basically, basically. So, so I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, there's probably a better answer to this, but when we, for example, we describe electromagnetism, okay, and how things interact when you throw electrons at each other. Um, we have a really good theory that tells us exactly how these electrons will interact. Um, and, you know, typically when you're stu studying high energies, we scatter stuff off each other. That's what happens at CERN, okay. And we can calculate the efficiency with which things scatter, what directions they go. We can do these calculations, you know, with exquisite precision. Okay? And there's a mathematical formalism for doing that. Um, we try doing that with general relativity, and we start talking about quantum scattering of, of objects of each other. Um, we get it, we, we can't calculate. We end up doing trying to calculate, and we get these infinities. There's no way of getting an answer. We, we try, you know, we, we have to do this in early math. We have to do some integrals, and these integrals don't converge. And then sometimes we fix these integrals by subtracting out these infinities. 
but while in the case of the electrons for electromagnetism we know how to do that and it, it's bang on we have no idea so we have this problem that things don't seem to converge theoretically you can't when you do a calculation you get a nonsense answer and that's the fundamental problem that we have calculating scattering problems for example in, in, in general relativity um, but as you know as I was saying we really don't need to do this very you know this happens at very high at low energies we know how to do this but at very high energies we don't know how to do this but this is really high energy it doesn't really matter for you know, our, our normal world my, uh, my second question was about uh, how you mentioned how they observed the merging of two black holes into yes. one. Um, so what's the time scale on which this sort of thing happens? Depends and on the mass of the black holes. And so um, depends so so you know, these things you start off, you know, typically you start off with two objects, distant objects, somehow caught in each other's orbits, and they lose energy by radiating gravitational waves. Okay, they and, and, and they come closer to a the, this thing of coming close as they radiate gravitational waves while they're far apart is minuscule. I think what I think I worked it out. I'm probably wrong, but Earth is getting closer to the Sun by a hair's width over a time scale of a year through this process, and so we'd have to wait for a very long time before it became very close and you know collapsed into the Sun and, and fell into the Sun. Same thing with these black holes. While they're far apart, it takes a very long time, but as they become closer. It's much more efficient at losing um, uh, energy. Uh, so it depends on the masses. Depends on the masses of black holes. It depends on the distances. You know, we could be talk take, we could be talking about the um, the time, the fall in time in which until they can merge could be the lifetime in the universe. It could be millions of years. It depends on the masses. It depends how they started off. But in this particular experiment, did they just sort of pre-identify two black holes that were candidates. For this no, energy? they saw a spike in the data. So that you know they're con constantly monitoring. So how does the experiment work? Two experiments in different places, two detectors in two different places, and it's basically looking for um, a pattern in in that you've got these masses which are feeling, uh, which basically pick up distortions in space time. Okay, and if you've got two objects orbiting like that, you're going to pick up the periodicity in these distortions. They're emitting gravitational waves, and these things, your your detectors are going to be doing something like that. Okay, but you've got a detector doing that over here, and you've got another detector doing that over there, over there. If you've got this distant object, you've got gravity waves hitting this, gravity waves hitting that. It's going to you 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 expect to see these, you know, periodic this periodic signal, completely synchronous in both things. So you're looking for that. But what they really found, and that was what they were so lucky, is what you see is you you see these oscillations, and then it gets very close, and then you get this spike. And then it decays. And so they, you find the spike, and then you retrofit, and you find that the oscillations were there. So it's not like they were monitoring these black holes. They just have these, you know, they've got these detectors, and it's all noise. All of a sudden, they see a spike. They say, hang on. And they go back and look, and then they find them with these oscillations. That these oscillations match, and that's, what the, that's how they pick up this, um, this spike thing. Spike in what sort of, like the magnitude of a particular yes. the, oscillation? Exactly. The, uh, the spike, so you basically have these two mirrors. Each detector is two mirrors. Three, but two mirrors, and they're kind of vibrating with the ripples in space time. And you, know, you have a bigger vibration in them, so you're looking for that. Where does that tell you that two objects are merged into one? That doesn't tell you, but if they're synchronous, 
you expect that to mean that it's detected something which isn't local. It's not a car driving by or some tectonic plate or something like that. And then if you go back and, and look in the time series and you find these oscillations, and these oscillations are synchron synchronous between the two things, this coincidence is what makes you think, okay, this is something out there and it has exactly the pattern that you expect from uh, two black holes falling into each other. So you, it's a bit like um, fingerprint matching. Right. You have this thing, and, you, you know, and then you, you, you go through and you run lots of simulations until you find what kind of black holes would give you that signal. And, and if you match it, and it matches beautifully, the theory matches the data beautifully, you say you found the two black holes. So that's how it's done. Anyone else? <laughs> Do you mind me asking another one? No, but you didn't lend me your glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so mine's actually very related to a previous question. Okay, so I need to listen and then talk to you. So actually, related to the first question Sophia just asked about the incompatibility between quantum mechanics and, and general relativity. So yeah. just to make sure that I understand your answer correctly, does, does it mean that when you calculate in, with quantum mechanics how these scatter patterns yes. work, you just completely ignore gravity altogether? Yes, normally because... the, the it's the, very weak force. The, um, the, here's, here's, okay, so basically I'm holding this and the... Everything that's, uh, I'm using chemical energy right here, and, and chemical energy is basically atoms and, and, and glued together, and it's all electromagnetism, right? This is electric. I'm holding this book like that, and the earth is pulling against me and pulling the book down, and I'm winning, okay? So that's just an, gives you an idea of the relative strength of electromagnetism versus gravity. So going back to the previous question, does cosmology give us any idea of how often black holes emerge, <coughs> and hence do we know how lucky we were to observe that happening? So the, the big thing that we're trying to figure out is, so this discovery, this LIGO discovery, is really interesting because it found black holes with masses of around 30 to 40 solar masses. Okay. Um, if you look at the literature until then, black holes were all much smaller. <coughs> you know, they were up to 10 solar masses, but no one expected, except couple of papers that came out around November where they said, oh, you know, we could predict black so someone someone had a leak, you know, someone had a route into the LIGO discovery and decided to write some theory papers predicting. Um, but the the 30 to 40 solar mass black holes were completely un un unpredictable. And so the answer is to begin with, no. What people now are trying to understand is where what could form these black holes, where they would come from. And a very interesting idea has come up where some people have said, well, maybe these black holes, there are many of these black holes, there are so many of these black holes that they solve another of the problems, that, not problems, another of the open questions in cosmology, which is what is the dark matter? Mm. You know, we could maybe have a universe full of these black holes. We didn't, wouldn't need that many, but... Um, Enough of these black holes that, that it would, you know, it would solve the dark matter problem. The dark matter problem is this problem where we believe that um, 25 percent uh, of the total energy density of the universe is in stuff which clumps around galaxies but doesn't interact through electromagnetic radiation. So it's dark; you don't see it. And black holes would do the job. So you said the universe is expanding right now. Yes. So first question is, will it change the shape that the universe is, like the galaxies themselves? No. Like our galaxy, for example. No, it's a bit, it's like that Woody Allen joke where, where Woody Allen 
I don't know which was it, I don't know which movie it was where he turns to his mother. The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. And his mother, shut up. Brooklyn isn't expanding. <laughs> and so, um, on 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 small scales, yeah. I mean, the rest of gravity is so effective. You know, it dominates. So you don't. It completely supersedes the the the, the expansion of the universe. So locally, we're not expanding. Okay, yeah. but we're embedded in the universe, which. You know, if you go to sufficiently under to sufficiently empty but not completely empty areas, it is expanding. And is there any proof that it will collapse at some point? So it used to be the textbook thing used to be you go out and you measure the you measure the expansion rate and you measure the amount of stuff in the universe. And if the stuff if you measure the amount of stuff in the universe and it was too much, the universe it was too little the universe would expand ever faster. If you measured the, the amount of stuff and it was right a certain amount, it would expand and coast, but completely. And if you measured the amount of stuff in the universe and it was too much, the universe would expand and collapse. Now, over the last 15, 20 years, we seem to have found this odd thing where the universe is not only expanding, but it's also expanding in an accelerated way. And it's very counterintuitive because if you you think of gravity, gravity tends to pull. So if you imagine the universe full of stuff and it expanding, the stuff in the universe should be pulling it. So the expansion of the universe should be decelerating. And what you see is it's accelerating. So it seems like there's something that's just making it push, pushing it apart even more. Um, this is another problem that I didn't allude to, which is known as the dark energy problem, the cosmological constant problem. Once you throw that in the mix, all bets are off. You know, even if we did measure that the universe was full of stuff. The fact that it's accelerating means that it could be expanding forever. So we have no way of predicting if the universe will go to a big crunch, to a big rip, and just continue expanding forever. question so they, no one expected black holes that big okay and so the way that I think it would be detected but it wouldn't be when I said that we were all moved to tears because we saw the signal right um, it's because the black holes were that big so the best thing that could have happened to LIGO was to detect such a clear signal but it could have detected it's detecting other mergers now it has detected other mergers so maybe the previous one that they reported it was not no, the, oh, the previous one the, is, previous. the previous thing wasn't black holes merging. The previous was something completely different. It would have been ripples left over from the very hot Big Bang, which is just this. But how can you distinguish that? How can you, how can you know? You, you can, you, how can you know what? That it's just something that's fall off of the Big Bang. You can, you can do calculations. You can predict if you have this very early period of very rapid expansion. You can work out that it will, it will generate. What it does is it takes microscopic quantum fluctuations in space-time, stretches them to very large scales, and just imprints them on space-time. So that's, that's the origin of that signal that wasn't found, which is very different from the one from black holes. Anyone else? Oh, what's that guy going to win the Nobel Prize for? Um, uh, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. It's, it's uh, Kip Thorne. He's a theorist. Um, 
Ray Weiss, who's this experimentalist at MIT, and a guy called Ron Draper, who's back in Glasgow, who's also an experimentalist. They basically, in the, in the 70s, early 70s, decided we're going to build this instrument. And they took decades to get funding for it. Believing that it would be useful, they would find something Yeah, with they it. believed it was good, good uh, and, and they got it, and they got more and more money. It became this thing, this beast, this beast. I remember before the LIGO experiment, before there was any rumor, you know, I get these grants to review, and I always say, this is great stuff, Greg, but I think, okay, but, you know, who knows? They may find stuff in like 10, 20 years' time. It was this, it was this pipe dream. And so it's, I think it's just this fantastic scientific story. These people just did it. People would, would say, oh, no, let's, at some point, let's, let, let, let's let them do it, but there's no way they're going to find anything. And they found it. And so, you know, they deserve all the prizes in the world because it's such a, <laughs> it's such a, you know, they just stuck to their guns for yeah. 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And it could have, it could have flunked, and they, I mean, they could have died before it found anything. <laughs> 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 no, 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 I wrote that in the book. <laughs> I said, I said, I don't know if I, I have to check, I didn't say, you know, some of these characters may have died by the time. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and it's quite sad. Ron Drever is, you know, um, has Alzheimer's. So, you know, he's not aware that this has happened. So it's, you know, beyond his conscious oh, window. He's flashcards all over wherever he's staying, so he sees it all the time. Yeah. Every few <laughs> seconds he'll be reminded yeah, of yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, last one. <laughs> I just realised that um, if we have uh, black holes merging of 30, 40 uh, solar masses, in such a short time that we're trying to measure it, how big will the the, mm. the black holes be in the end, or is there? Oh, so so you're saying you you have these these so you have, I remember I forget if it's thirteen or fourteen they merge and they the end black holes like seventy solar masses, and you're saying then you'll have seventy solar masses. Yeah, you can work out the rate. I mean, we know there's a black hole at the centre of the galaxy, and it has. Um, I'm gonna get this wrong. Is it 10 to the 9 solar masses? <laughs> uh, we're talking about black holes, these supermassive black holes. Yeah. A bit. And it's not near us. Uh, it's, it's about <laughs> 8. <laughs> 24,000 latches. We just said no one expected black holes as big as 30 solar masses. No, no, but there's a segregation. It's, it's very good question. It's this odd thing that, you know, we expect, we know from binaries, but looking at X-ray binaries, that there are black holes there, indirect evidence for black holes, and we have an idea of what their masses are. And so we have an idea of, we know that there are black holes which are at the centres of galaxies, which are 10 to the 6 and 10 to the 9, okay? But there's this really desert of space where we have never seen any black holes. Um, and are there black holes on a quantum scale, potentially? Um, there could be. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years ago when they were going to flip the LHC on, but there were a few people were saying, <laughs> you're going to create these black holes and it's going to be the end of the world. So, yeah, some theories predict black holes. Yeah. In principle, yes. You can have black holes on any scale. Okay, great. I think we kept Professor Pereira for a long, long time. So I would like to thank him for his magnificent uh, talk and all these like, interactive questions. It is great.
Uh, and also I would like to thank everybody in the volunteer team because you see my face, but actually there are like many, many people involved in that. And it's thanks to all these people and some of the tavern, of course, that this is possible. So it's like a general applause for everybody that contributes to that. And we will see each other, if you want, of course, uh, to our next event that will be ne uh, Wednesday, February 15th, always here, talking about engineering bubbles. There are like stuff around if you want to have a look. So thank you. <laughs>